Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life series called Worthy. It's a a study in the gospel of Luke, uh, bringing God our best. That's the tagline for the series as we we march all the way to Easter, bringing God our best. So we've talked about bringing God our faith. There's few better things than that than to trust God. It's the most foundational piece of our entire system of belief. Bring him our best in terms of our faith. Bring Bring him our best in terms of our worship. Man, worship is so much more than a musical experience on a Sunday morning. That is a good and worthy offering that we bring to him. We bring him our best in worship. We bring him our best in our discipleship, our costly, our costly following of him. That is one of the best gifts we could possibly bring Jesus is not to just pay him lip service, but to actually follow up with uh, our deeds, our acts, our actions, right? These are all the wonderful things that we bring to him. And today we're in Luke 12, so you can open your, your phones or your print Bibles. Of course, it will be on the screen. We're talking about bringing God our life's work, the whole thing, to bend our whole lives toward him in urgency and service. Check this out. This is from Hebrews 9. Oh, are we there already? Shoot, did I miss Hebrews 9? Let's see. All right. I'm going to read it to you. Just sit tight, okay? Hebrews 9 says this, verse 27. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins. He already did that on the cross, right? He already did that on the cross. But to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Man, that's powerful. This allusion to the, to the second coming of Jesus. We don't, we don't camp out there too much is the way I figured it going into today. And so today we're going to get a little radical. We're going to be talking about the end times a little bit. Sit still. Don't get freaked out. Don't head for the door. Hang with me. I think maybe, you know, sometimes we talk about death, uh, you know, in, in kind of thinly veiled tones, especially if, if death, death comes near to us or around us. Maybe that's some of you in this room. Uh, many of us, we worry kind of neurotically about death or what will happen to the end or, you know, after we die. Uh, but we don't often just camp out with urgency in love and passion for the day that Jesus will come again and redeem all things. That's the beautiful picture. All things made new. It's one of my favorite worship songs. And I'll, and I'll skip to the end for a second and help you out because I'm going to be using this word a lot. We're going to do a little class on this word apocalypse in a second, or eschatology. It's like end times. We're going to live there a lot this morning, but just put you at ease for a second. Yes, there's judgment that comes with that. God's word is very clear that he's taking a look at our life. But it's also the redemption and newness of all things. Any ailments you have on the inside or on the outside of your body made new, made complete, made whole again. In the second coming of Jesus, that's a redemption thing. That is something we want to be about, okay? So uh, let's do some class, all right? We, uh, basically, as we turn the corner in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is urgent himself. His tones kind of churn to an end times or the last things type of scenarios that we should think about, pray about, consider, and live towards. 
And as he marches towards Jerusalem, i.e. the cross, he takes on this sense of urgency. Luke Luke 12 is no exception. There's a passage that we're going to live in in the bottom of chapter 12 in the gospel book of Luke. And it's what it's referred to as eschatology. Big boy word, okay? We're going to do some class. Is that all right? If we do some class, just hang with me. We won't live in class forever because that's not what Sunday morning is for. Just FYI, it's not. We're here to communicate for life change. That's what I'm about. That's why I invest my time to prepare for this morning. Why Bucky does is for life change, not for class. Okay, that's for those out there that says, we don't get enough Bible teaching every now and then. We're doing it right now. Eschatology, all right? Eschatology is the study of last things. Eschatology is the study of last things. There's another word that's a companion word for it, apocalypse. You know what apocalypse means? We think it's so heavy and gnarly and aggressive. It just means uncovering. It means an uncovering or a revelation, like the book of Revelation. Does that, that sounds familiar now, doesn't it? Right. We have a whole book devoted to this. But it's a mistake, you guys. Why do I take this diversion for a second to talk about eschatology and apocalypse? Because when you read the Bible... Many times you read the Bible in the, in the quiet of your own office, your own room, your own, own time with Jesus. And you read these passages and you think, oh man, they make you kind of squirrely and kind of like, what's happening here? There's several passages outside the last book of the Bible that handle this. And Jesus loved to talk this way. All the time, Jesus leans into this idea of, you know, fire or judgment or, or going to meet my father. The final matters. The destiny matters. He gives these cautions and warnings. This is apocalypse. This is the study of the last things. Here we are in Luke chapter 12, and we have a study of the last things. But here's the application, okay? Just like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this amazing apocalypse guy. Peter, James, Paul, and Jesus, they were agents of the end and last things. Just like they were, you guys, you and I are invited to be agents of last things. That's our challenge, is to live like tomorrow is not guaranteed. As we talk about worship and faith and costly discipleship, that means having a perspective, a lens, that tomorrow is not guaranteed. We're apocalyptic people. As much as we squirm and squirm and maybe don't like that word, and, and I'm right now sounding to you like a picket sign preacher on the street block, hang with me. It's about redemption. Jesus' second coming, being anticipatory for that, being urgent around that, is about the newness and redemption of all things. And you and I get to be representatives, i.e. administrators, of revealing and uncovering these truths. You and I get to be administrators of revealing and uncovering these truths. The way we watch, the way we work, we work towards a pure gospel. There's a situation, you guys, uh, in Christian culture. You know, many times we see it in the news. Christian culture becomes national culture. Country and, and politics over my Jesus following. Christianity has an amazingly tremendous bad rap of that, doesn't it? Evangelicalism. And yet, evangelicalism is also guilty of consumerism and individualism. I, just, I want pretty things and nice things. I swear, if I had a dime piece for every hipster pastor I saw, okay, yes, myself included, uh, they came through on my Instagram feed recently. All these, I clicked on one ad. I clicked on one paid ad that was a Christian church ad, and now all of the ads are Christian churches. And the pastors, if I don't have a beard to hear and the most slick back here and the perfect jewelry, I'm not a Christian anymore, apparently. 
we have this challenge, you guys. We can make light of it because all of us fall prey to the consumerism. But we have this gospel. It's lost its purity. Gospel meaning good news, the truth of Jesus, what he did for us. And there's a guy, gnarly, apocalyptic writer, Eugene Peterson. He wrote a whole translation of the Bible called the Message Bible. He took 10, 11 years to translate the whole Bible into like layman's, layman's communication, layman's speech. And this is what he said about apocalypse, the season we're in as we look towards Easter. He said, apocalypse is arson. It secretly sets a fire in the imagination that boils the fat out of an obese cultural religion and renders a clear gospel love, a pure gospel hope, a purged gospel faith. It's intense. I know. I get it. We're living there. I'm an intense person. That's how people describe me. So just forgive me and bear with me. But we've allowed things to seep into the culture of the church, you guys. Those battles that I talked about, battling the consumerism, the individualism, the popularity, the even relevance. And if we're going to talk about and live like Jesus instructed us, then we have to purge some of that fat. It's hurtful to our testimony. It's hurtful to our invitation. And so we get to do that work as agents and administrators of the apocalypse. We get to be uncovering what a real gospel picture looks like. That's a worthy offering. That's a worthy job. And if you call yourself a Christian in this room, you signed up for it. That's your job. That's our work. Jesus is going to lean into that in a very specific, particular way. Just like John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, the whole lot of them, we follow in their footsteps. And the way that our whole lives become an administration of an uncovering. Let's get into the text, shall we? That was one heck of an intro. Let's look at verse 35. Watching with bated breath. That's what I see here. Verse 35, Jesus is talking to an audience, probably mostly of elite Jews. That's who he came to speak to primarily. And then the word spread from there to all uh, unbelievers, non-believers from every different culture. This is what Jesus said in his warning language, his, uh, his apocalyptic language. He says, get dressed for service and keep your lamps burning. Stop. He's saying something here. Underneath the English version of this text is a, is, a, is a Hebrew saying. You know what the Hebrew saying was? A phrase often used? Gird your loins. That's the saying. It's carried on even into this day. You know what I read when I, when I, when I hear that? It's like if you're in your business clothes, your 9 to 5 clothes, and all of a sudden you get leapt into an emergency, what are you going to do? You're going to tuck your shirt in, strap on your belt, double knot your shoes. You're going to make sure that you're ready to run. You see Jesus' language right from the get-go. Get ready for service. Get ready to run. This is an urgent season. As administrators of the apocalypse, you guys, of the apocalyptic, we're not resolved to a life that is sedentary. We're not resolved or resorted to that life. We wait and we're ready to charge into action. We're ready to leap in. That's his first caution to us, our first warning. Be ready. Keep the candles burning. Verse 36. Be like people waiting for their master to come back from the wedding celebration. So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those slaves whom their master finds alert when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. Have them take their place at the table and will come and wait on them. Okay, we're about to launch into parable. So let's get our characters straight. We have the, the slave slash manager. These are, that's us, the administrators. We have the master, Jesus. 
And then all of a sudden, in a crazy turn of events here, in verse 37, this is, don't get me wrong, because we have some like real blood and guts coming later in this part of the chapter, so just bear with me. But this part right here is the most radical part of the whole chapter. Did you see what Jesus did there? Because he uses a pronoun. You can almost miss it. I tell you the truth. He, meaning Jesus, will dress himself to serve, have them take his place at the table, and will come and wait on them. Wow. That is a backwards, upside-down, radical thing to say if you're to be the Messiah, the expected king, the expected political ruler. Jesus says, no, I'm here to wash your feet. Through what I do on the cross, it will be completely upside down. It will not be the power and fame and success that the world defines. It will be an upside down way of serving. When you do that, when you expect me, when you wait for me, I will serve you in this radical, radical way. You have to remember, um, the analogy that Jesus uses in the New Testament is that the church is the bride, me and you, as individuals who make up the church, are referred to as the bride. And then who is the groom? Go ahead. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much for the apathetic tone in the back because I think that's my friend and she knows that's how I roll. Uh, let's move from apathy into urgency. Remember, tie your shoes on, double knotted, get the belt on, tuck the shirt in. Who's the groom? Okay, that was approximately 35% better, but I will accept it at this time because I'm a gracious human being and I love that you're here on St. Patty's Day. You're not pre-gaming it. Way to go. Okay, so he's the groom. The church is the bride. You know how many engaged couples I know right now? I just like a bunch of people getting married this year. I'm doing one of the weddings, and I'm so stoked that couple is here. Love that couple. They're awesome. And then my sister-in-law is getting married this year, and there's at least one or two other. And they're preparing for their wedding. You know what happens in the wedding preparation season? You know what happens? You get a third job. You really get a third job. You got your, you got your number one job, which is your job, your work. And, and then you got a number two job, which is just being engaged, loving on the person. And then you get a temporary third job, which is what? Yeah, yeah, you're going to plan that stinking wedding. And it's going to be the best wedding that anyone's ever been to, ever. It's going to be perfect. Bridezilla, it's going to be perfect, okay? We know some grooms are psycho too, so it's not just on the woman, all right? We've got some psycho grooms. Any psycho grooms in the room? For sure. You're there. I see you. Don't raise your hand. It's okay. We get crazy for this season. We act like we see the prize at the end of the run, don't we? For a season, we're willing to tolerate the crazy and the urgency and the importance of planning for a wedding for a season because we have our eyes on the prize. So for a season, we will assume a third job and work so hard and hurry up and be frantic and be detail-oriented, keyword administrators, we will be so detail-oriented. If those petals are not the exact right color for that table setting, you're going to hear about it. And I don't mean an email, mom-in-law, okay? It's going to be some eyeball-to-eyeball meetings that we're going to have. We become temporarily for a season so detail-oriented. Why? Because we assume administration. We become administrators for the perfect wedding, and we want it to be the perfect wedding, You see, though, the difference is, as administrators of the apocalyptic, we don't just assume that role for a season, do we? We assume that role for our lifetime. We extend that big push. We extend that big urgency. We extend that prize that we're running towards for our whole life. 
over and over and over again. We wake up each morning with a renewal and a commitment to say, man, I can see the prize. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to make all things new. And man, I'm in a desperate need for new things and in me and my family and friends in them. Administrators think that way. But it's hard. It's hard, isn't it, to run that hard for that long? I mean, who wants to be cyclically engaged? Anyone in the room just want to be engaged forever? No, you guys get it, okay? Even the ones who are not just about to be married, you get it. And that's why Jesus gives us another caution. Look at verse 38. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night and finds them alert, blessed are those slaves. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Verse 40. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus moves from marriage celebration to where? To the home. He goes from marriage to the home. He pictures a household, a focused and alert and ready and urgent household. That's natural, isn't it? And the bride and the groom have had week-long festivities, which would have been true in the first century. That's why he says, be ready. They could have gone away. It wasn't just one night. It was several nights of partying in the first century to be ready at any moment's notice when they could come. And in a strange turn of events, we're, we are now the owner and Jesus is a thief. So we're the manager, we're the administrator of the home, and Jesus comes now as a thief, which is wild and, and different. But what does third watch? What does third watch mean? It's the graveyard. It's a graveyard shift, isn't it? It's a graveyard shift. When we least expect it, when we're most exhausted. I'll never forget, I was in fifth grade. I did the research on this because I didn't remember what grade it was. And then I looked it up and found out I was in fifth grade when they let us. No, no, no. They made us go on a field trip to Dana Point for the Pilgrim Overnight Field Trip. You know, you know, you guys know what that is? Some nodding heads there, parents know what that is. They let you as fifth graders sleep overnight on a vessel that was made like, you know, around circa 1830s as an educational experience. And you know what they do? As a, as a green deck hand or whatever the term is, I can't remember, they have you wake up for the third watch and put you on the deck in the middle of the night as a fifth grader. Is this criminal? Am I the only one trying to figure out how they allow this to happen? It's crazy. But it marked me, man. I'll never forget being on that deck in the freezing cold at 2 or 3 a.m. and being exhausted, like the dead of night, deep, deep sleep, and someone tapping me on the shoulder. Hey, Ben, it's your shift. Like, go up there. What is happening? I'm a fifth grader. This is not appropriate, okay? So how many of us have felt the same exact way? That it's just criminal. It's difficult. It's sleepy. For Jesus to expect us to be ready in the middle of the night in our work, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our friendships, we are acting like it's the graveyard shift. We're acting like, man, I just, I've fallen asleep at the wheel. So Jesus goes into the home. He says the care and focus and urgency of a house, which is what we did in the last teaching series. You can go back and, and look at it. House church. Why we invested so much time, whether you're married or not. You still call somewhere your home. You still lay your head at night. Jesus devotes some time here looking at the house. And some of us are treating all of our relationships and our work. Our work is a huge chunk of our legacy, isn't it? Spend eight hours day over day, whatever it is that you do. 
that's a chunk of our lives at the end of our time. And we're treating it like it's, it's graveyard. It's graveyard shift. As administrators of the apocalypse, we cannot and do not fall asleep on the jab. That last line haunts me. When you did not expect him. As in, some of us have given up looking. Some of us have given up waiting. Some of us are not really anticipating anymore. I'll be the first to admit, I don't spend my hours thinking about the second coming. Again, mostly because it culturally feels weird to me. I picture that pastor on the street corner talking about that. But the challenge this morning for all of us, you guys, is if we're going to be in the detailed stuff of administrating the apocalyptic, we think on and we pray on and we dwell on Christ's second coming. Because of what it means for me and you and those who are coming into relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 41. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? The Lord is undaunted. He just stays on point. The Lord replied, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his household servants to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds at work when he returns. I tell you, the master will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and blame Disney. I'm going to blame Disney, okay? What do you want to be when you grow up, little Billy? You can have anything in the whole world. See all these films you've been inundated with? And what does little Billy say? Mom, Dad, I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I want to be an administrator. <laughs> I just want to grow up, and I want to, I want to cook those books for Jesus. And I want to manage those spreadsheets for Jesus. That's what the word, okay, wise manager there in verse 42 Manager, steward, administrator. These words are intertwined, the way Jesus used them. Steward, it's the old school, like medieval word for it. You've often heard it. Stewardship, oh, we're talking about giving money, good. Steward really means manager. When we say stewardship campaign, we mean a manager of the stuff God's given us. Yes, money, but also time and talent. That we manage it well. We're administrators of it. On our interview questions when we're hiring new staff, we ask them, so are you good at administration? What do people say? Yeah, yeah. No. Come on. You're not good at administration. Just be honest. Few of us, okay, very few of us, we all want to be the boss. We all want to be the leader. We all want to be the manager. But few of us want to be the administrator. Few of us want to be the administrator. You see, guys, I don't think actually, back to that interview question, I don't think actually we have a problem with our skill of administration, I don't think it's just not having the mechanic tools of administration. I think it's actually a will issue. If I'm diagnosing the issue for you and for me and for the average evangelical Christian out there today, I think, man, it's not that they don't know what the Bible says. And guys, as a church where 70% of us have been a believer for 20 years or more, I don't doubt that you have a handle on what Jesus said in the Gospels. So if I deduce that, what can I only reason? I can reason that we have a will problem. We don't lack the mechanics. We're just disinterested. We can't afford to be disinterested on this one, you guys. Not with the sense of urgency that I hear Jesus coming through in Luke 12. Strap on your boots. Double knot them. Lace the belt. Tuck in the shirt. Get ready to run. And yet, a good administrator is in the systems, in the details, in the small moments that the whole dang thing is built on the end of our life. And I think that's kind of God's view of it. The small moments, I love that. That's my personal mission statement is to help people build their faith in the small moments. 
And think about God's view of it for a second. If you take his lens of it, our, the whole scope of our lives, the 70-something-odd years that we're given on this planet, what is it but a, but a spreadsheet of the small moments? The small things. It's a collection of all the small things. As administrators of the apocalyptic, you see, we purge the fat out of our, our over-earning, overworking for grace, which is a perfect gift freely given, or our, our, our kind of grace gone wild, as Bucky likes to say. We got the good news, so what? I'm saved. I can just keep on living. We purge that junk, that crap from culture out of the gospel because we realize that the small things matter to God. But most of us have a really hard time living in the small moments of being employee, of being spouse, of being good Christian friend. It doesn't feel like a special assignment in the small small moments. And so if we're typing away at the spreadsheet of our lives, you guys, here's the deal. Here's the challenge. I said administrators for a reason. The whole message is titled that for a reason. As we're typing away and we're doing data entry on the legacy of our life, we can't skip over any of the cells. We can't skip over any of the boxes. God's called us to live into those small moments so we could build our faith. We could sacrifice our life for him like we're dying. Like tomorrow's not guaranteed. That's the sense of urgency that I get from Jesus. Okay, here's the last part. Band, you guys can come up here. Verse 45, but if that slave should say to himself, my master is delaying from returning, he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not foresee, and he'll cut him in two, yikes, and assign him a place with the unfaithful, whoops, aggressive, right, I, I, I get that, it's aggressive, see what I mean by eschatology, see what I mean by, by the heaviness and the urgency and, and, and some of Jesus' language here? Now, it's shocking, but if you can just suspend, what Jesus is actually talking about here is that last word, unfaithful. The flip side of that is faithfulness, okay? That's the thrust of this whole passage. This whole paragraph that's on the screen right now is about faithfulness. So if you can just suspend it for a second and think about faithfulness, if you could just live into that moment, what does it mean? Ben, help me apply this. How do I become more faithful, focused, watchful person? Well, we live in his presence. We live like he's actually all, all of Jesus' words to the contrary. We actually live like he never left. He gives us this parable of like, I, I was gone for a, a time and then I come back. But, but if you think about it, if God's everywhere, which you believe that he is, there's, he's outside time, he's outside space, he's ever present. We believe that about him. Then, then when we read Luke 12, verse 2, look at verse 2. So it says in Luke 12, verse 2, which let's see, where did it go? I don't have it. This is astonishing. It's crazy. Let's see. Okay, good. So we'll just live here for a second. Great. Um, Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing is secret that will not be made known. This is Luke 12. So then whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. You see, if you ask me, Ben, how do I live a more faithful outward life? I would say the issue is our inward life with Jesus. You see, the the, the frantic turmoil and disarray that we have on the outside is only a symptom of what's going on in our inner life. But if we treated this with any seriousness from, from Luke 12, verse 2, we'd see that it's our time spent with Jesus when we stop 
when we are quiet just for a moment because our world does not lend itself to that then maybe we could work on the will part remember skill versus will if we don't have a skill problem I'm ruling that out for a second we have a will issue you can't know the father's will if you don't spend time with him to hear and let him instruct you and pause and quiet your life so our biggest obstacle to faithfulness then is the distraction you see if we're going to redeem and renew even the word apocalypse and apocalyptic you, you know what apocalyptic people do they stop they pause. They invite quiet into their life. In that place, they'll go to meet Jesus and they'll visit with him and that will lead to a radical external life. That's what all of the apocalyptic people did. What, what did John the Baptist do? He lived in the woods. What did Jesus do between all the show and all the miraculous? He retreated to be with his father. This outward power, where did it come from? His inward life, his ordered, faithful life on the inside. Every single one of us has that question, how can we live more faithful lives, Ben? Well, that's part of it. And there's one more encouragement he gives. This is the last uh, passage here. Verse 45, 47. That, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or do what his master asked will receive a severe beating. Yeah. But the one who didn't know his master's will and did things worthy of punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. Quick heads up for those in the room who talk to non-believers and we get a, a great conversation. We've earned the right to have coffee with someone who doesn't believe like we believe. You, they do not start with this assumption. Jesus is talking about that. They don't start with our same biblical authority, our same assumptions. So Jesus' toughest words, his toughest critique were for whom? For the Jews, the religious elite, you and me, who already said yes to Jesus. So that's a heads up, by the way, in your conversations. You have to understand that. His, his toughest points came for us, you guys, in the room who have been following Jesus for 20 years or more. And his bottom line is that we're going to be accountable. We know the master's will, but do we do it? You guys, I can only talk about myself on this issue. I don't know about you, but as I think about my life, I think about how much I've been given. I've been given so much. A house in Orange County, California. A car that, yes, fits my seven children, all nine of us, okay? A job where I can feed those kids. Those seven children. A wife who served me for 10 years and I've tried to serve her. I've been given the world. Why? So that I could spend four hours a day on my phone? No. No. That is not being an administrator of the apocalyptic. That is not sitting in the inner quiet time of my life, praying over the spreadsheet in the cells of my time and saying, man, God, how can I be with you so that I can be with others in a more rich manner? And they could know that there's something different about me, a sense of urgency about Jesus coming again and restoring and making all things new. The same challenges before you. How is God inviting you? to be an agent, to be an administrator over the most urgent things ever on this life. It feels like a slog for us. It feels like we're just going on and on. And then how could God care about these tiny, minute details and these small things? He's in the small moments. I read that from Luke verse 2. He's in the dark of the night, the quiet of the morning. 
He says, be watchful and never forsake that sense of urgency. So let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you so much for this word of urgency, of revealing and uncovering what it means to follow you at all costs. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you cared enough to chase after me. Lord, you've given so much and your word is clear to whom much is given, much is required. So Jesus, as we go into this time of communion, I pray that every single person speak to them about what they must give as we seek to to bring God our best. That's what you deserve. After what you did by sending your son, that's what you deserve. So whatever it is in our time, the spreadsheet of our life, the time, the talent, yes, even the treasure that we ought to give, speak to us clearly now about what that is so we would no longer have a will problem, God. We could submit to your will and take action with urgency, Jesus, like tomorrow is not guaranteed. pray this in Jesus' name. There's communion stations at the front corners and at the back corners. Go now and, and join with someone in a circle. Uh, if you came solo today and take communion together as a family, it's a, it's a tradition that we just organically started to do. You're welcome. And those who know the tradition, look for others. Keep your head up and look for others to invite in and pray over the sense of urgency. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.